Hello there, folks. My name is Hugh O'Brien. What's left of him? Happy to be on the show on screen and beyond. And at age 84, I'm happy to be on anything. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of On Screen and Beyond. I'm Brian Zemrak, and our guest on the interview segment of this show is Hugh O'Brien. That's right. He, of course, was the star of the classic TV western, The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp. Also, he was the star of many movies and the founder of the Hobie Program. Now, Hugh's going to talk about all those things and a whole lot more in this show, so stick around for that. And let's see what else we got going for you. On Screen and Beyond, we'll be heading to the California Independent Film Festival on April 16th through the 19th in Livermore, California. We'll be interviewing some of the filmmakers, and uh, we'll post those on the Filmmaker's Corner of OnScreenAndBeyond.com. So be sure to check those out. And let's see if uh, you have any suggestions for any guest stars who you would like to have us try to interview on the show. Uh, well, uh, you know, like a, an old favorite TV show or a movie that you like, somebody who was in it, a star. Uh, let us know by email. That's right. And uh, you can email us at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. And we'll see what we can do. Can't promise anything, but we'll see what we can uh, come up with. Some of these people are hard to connect with, but uh, we do... Once in a while, get uh, connected with these people, and we get a chance to interview them. So give us your suggestions. We'd appreciate it. And um, we do have some great guests coming your way, and they'll be coming up in future episodes of On Screen and Beyond. And we'll give you a hint as to who will be our guest on the next episode, number 43, at the end of this show. So we're going to sort of give you a little, little clue to it and see if you can figure it out. And uh, then the next show, when it comes out, you'll find out who it's going to be. And uh, that's about it for now. We're going to get into Remake Madness coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness, well, looks like Quentin Tarantino's remake of 1978's Inglorious Bastards starring Brad Pitt makes its way into theaters on August 21st. Tarantino claims that it's an original screenplay and he did acquire the rights to the movie from 1978 to remake it, but he says this is an original screenplay, so it's not the same movie. Uh, let's see. The TV show Chips made Eric Estrada a TV star. Now, in 2011, we will see if it will make Wilmer Valderrama a movie star. Wilmer was, of course, Fez on that 70s show and will play Paunch in the big screen remake of, of the show. And that's about it for Remake Madness. Coming up next, upcoming movies and rumors right here on On Screen and Beyond. Upcoming movies, well, Matthew McConaughey is uh, set to star in a new film called The Lincoln Lawyer. And the movie is based on a novel by Michael Connolly. Cooper Gooding Jr. will star in The Last Warrior. The film is set in a war-ravaged future. Ashton Kutcher has many things in development, and in production he has Five Killers, which, is also, uh, which he also produced, and it's set for a 2010 release. It's listed as an action-comedy thriller, 
And we'll also star Catherine Heigl and Tom Selleck and Martin Mull. That's about it for upcoming movies. Coming up next, we have sequels down at Sequel City, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Well, in Sequel City, it looks like 2011 looks like the release of a sequel to Star Trek. Now, wait wait a minute. We're not talking about the Star Trek that's coming out next month. We're talking about the sequel to that one, okay? <laughs> They're already looking at it. Uh, it uh, the Star Trek is going to hit theaters in May, like I said, and it's in the very early stages, but it is already set and in de- the development stage for the sequel to Star Trek, okay? There's so many Star Treks that it's going to get confusing, but they are uh, definitely going to continue this on. There's no doubt about it, because this Star Trek is going to be a huge hit, I'm sure. And let's see, Baba Nosferatu, Curse of the She-Vampires, a sequel to Baba Hotep, is also looking for a 2011 release, and Creepshow is the fourth installment of the classic Creepshow series from the Stephen King short story, and that's in the works also. And we'll keep you updated on those. And that's about it for Sequel City. Coming up next, we're going to look at TV on DVD right here on On Screen and Beyond. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. TV on DVD, the complete second season of Pushing Daisies comes to DVD and Blu-ray on July 21st. June 30th, look for Monk, Season 7, as it arrives in stores in a four-disc set. Star Trek Season 1, the original series, comes to Blu-ray for the first time on April 28th. So you might want to get that if you're a Star Trek fan. And Mission Impossible Season 6 makes its way onto shelves on April 28th from CBS Paramount. And that's about it for TV on DVD right now. And coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, Movies on DVD. (laughs) Movies on DVD, well, The Spirit comes to DVD on April 14th. And it's based on the old comic strip by Will Eisner and written and directed by Frank Miller. And Anne Hathaway stars in Passengers, coming to DVD on May 12th. She plays a young therapist assigned to counsel five survivors of a plane crash. Now, this is actually one of an earlier work of hers because uh, she's, of course, gotten very big now. And uh, they're starting to release some of her other movies that were not quite as big as some of the other ones she's been in. And let's see, June 9th, look for Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. It makes its way into stores on that day. So check that out. Clint's back. And that's about it for Movies on DVD. Coming up next, as I told you earlier, we have you O'Brien with us for our special guest on the interview segment. And he's going to talk about White Earp. And he's also going to talk about uh, the movies he's been in and uh, some famous people he's worked with. John Wayne, for one. And he talks a lot about John in this uh, interview. And I think it's going to be quite interesting to you. So I hope you're going to stick around for that because it's coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond.
My guest today is an Emmy-nominated and Golden Globe-winning actor who for the last 50 years has had the opportunity to see his dream of helping the youth of America and the world to learn to make a difference through his program called Hobie, of which he is the founder. He also is known for his seven-year role as Wyatt Earp on TV. He's you, O'Brien. Welcome to the show, you. Well, thank you, sir. I'm happy to be on it, and at my age, I'm damn happy to be on anything. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Happy to do it. First off, I want to congratulate you on celebrating over 50 years of Hobie. Did you ever think that when you started the program that it would uh, grow into what it is today? Uh, I had uh, certainly every intention uh, for it to grow. I had a lot of uh, plans, and they've been exceeded, of course, but after that, spending those nine days, very inspirational days with Albert Schweitzer at his clinic in Africa and coming back home and having, uh, well, it took four planes before the age of jets could get back to L.A. I had a lot of time uh, to think about who I was, where I was at that time, uh, 1958, and what I would be doing for the you know next 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. I focused on uh, trying to reach out put my arms in a positive way around 10th graders, 15, 16-year-old young men and women, uh, in a positive way to give them some direction and excitement about their future and for them to focus on. Mm-hmm. I focused on 10th grade because when I was 15, sophomore in high school, that was when I personally had to decide to fish or cut bait. You got Two more years left in high school, and then the old tough world is right on top of you. So you got to really start to focus on who you are, what you want to be, and what you can be. And, you know, in our country, we have basically a freedom to choose to be anything we want. That's right. How fortunate we are to, you know, to live here. Oh, yeah. Maybe not everybody listening has been born here, but they live here now. And I, uh, it's amazing to me how many people want to get back into this country or get into it as opposed to some people that are trying to leave other countries. So I'm very proud of what we are and what we mean, I think, and can mean to the rest of the world. And the future is to be what we hope it to be is one way to put insurance on that is to put your arms around young people when they are focusing on, trying to focus on who they are and what they want to do. About... Uh, a little over 10,000 high schools a year that select their top 10th graders to go to the Hobie program at the state level, three to four days, and uh, we focus on their future, and there are no speeches. If the president shows up, which he, whenever we're in D.C., he does, wow. allow three minutes to humanize self and subject, and then the rest is Q&A with these guys at that marvelous mag- magic age asking the tough questions. God knows that that age they're tough. Do you go to some of the different seminars and things that they attend? Well, I try to go to uh, as many as I can. There are 75 sites Mm -hmm. uh, taking place uh, between uh, well between June and and, uh, May and June. So they're anywhere from uh, five to seven each weekend. Wow! Try to do as many as I can. Yeah. Uh, certainly, the thought is there, and uh, if I can't physically get to him, I do t- get a chance to talk to him on the phone uh, for a few minutes. Hmm. They're selected, by the way, which is important because there are people out there, uh, you know, that have guidance.
guys and gals coming up that will be that age. There are uh, a lot of people out there might be listening that are freshmen and they'll be sophomores next year, and they're eligible, and the school selects what they consider to be the outstanding potential leader. I ask them not to consider great, great points. Oh. Knocking great points. Yeah. Uh, but I think what's really important is that they uh, find a job, what they want to do, and that they do the best they can with it. Hmm. Means they need to focus on, on uh, what's out there and uh, also the knowledge that if they don't like what they're doing, they can always change that. Yeah. Now, this is available in every state in the country and other countries also? In every state. And then the World Congress, which is our big Super Bowl, takes place in July. And we'll have a couple from each of those 75 locations uh, that will come to the World Congress, selected by their volunteers that are running those Kopi seminars. What makes the World Congress uh, is that we'll have anywhere from 20, 25 other countries sending the same age group. Yeah. And uh, that's quite a conclave with gets together at the George Washington University, and that takes place the last eight days in July. That must be an amazing group of young adults. It is amazing, and you take a look at that group, and you're looking at the future uh, governors, mayors, you're looking at the future presidents, you're looking at the future leaders of all of the, uh, the countries that are there. And the Hobie program takes place in uh, 12 countries now, 100% of every high school in Israel, as an example, uh, goes through the program Hobie, although over there they call it LEAD, L-E-A-D. Mm -hmm. We have 1,500 uh, high schools that to go to, uh, that send their guys and gals to the one in Mexico, about 800 in uh, uh, Canada, uh, 750 or more, I think it'll be 800 this year in Hong Kong for that part of China. Think about it, uh, almost 900 high schools in wow. China. And 700 or so in Thailand, uh, Philippines, uh, about 600 in Japan, about uh, almost 1,000 go through the program. Hmm. It's a huge program overseas as well, and I'm very, very, very proud of it. It yeah. costs to the, the school, to the student, yeah. the family. And it all started with just you being inspired by Albert Schweitzer? And wanting to put something back. And yeah. show business has been very good to me. I went to visit Schweitzer because I felt he was really a true, uh, a truly magnificent humanitarian. And I just, uh, I'd read a great deal about him. I just wanted to meet him. And I got a letter from him, from him saying that Dr. O'Brien would be welcome at any time. He thought I was a doctor. Uh. And uh, during the day, I used to build baby cribs, pass out foods, whatever I could to, to be of help. And then in the evening, I never had less than about two hours sitting with that great man talking about any subject that I wanted to talk about. Wow. Great human being. It's amazing. It motivated me to really want to do, you know, something. And I thought about my own life. It took uh, three different planes, four different planes, actually, before the age of jets to get back to Los Angeles. So it took me about 48 hours. <laughs> I got off the plane and uh, two weeks later I had my first group of 10th uh, graders. Wow, that, that's fast. And they're all run by volunteers. There's nobody out there being paid. Yeah. Uh, all of the sites in each of the states, uh, they're running uh, the Hopi program. Uh, they're volunteers, different walks of life. Uh, men and women that 
also feel that the youth of today are the promise of tomorrow, and this is their way of uh, also, uh, you know, putting their arms around tomorrow. So it's a very cost-effective program. Yeah, that's great. That is really, really something. It's now about 100, 125 or so up in Ca- uh, Capitol Hill at any given time. Under the Bush administration, we had 15 at the White House alumni. Uh, under the uh, uh, current administration, we don't know yet, but I think we have at least 10 that I know of. Wow. Uh, we have an average about 300 or more in the State Department uh, placed all over the year, uh, all over the world. Hmm. And uh, as an example, Mike Huckabee, uh, former governor of Arkansas, ran for president of the United States, a great guy. He uh, says in his letter to me, I doubt that I would have ever become governor of my state if I hadn't had the Hobie experience. Wow. The kind of people that we uh, develop, and we're very, very proud of the record of that. So there's a lot of alumni who have gone on to actually do a lot of good then. Well, uh, also uh, about 90% of the volunteers running the Hobie program now uh, around the world are alumni of the program, and this is their way of putting back. Hmm, that's great. Think about that. Yeah, that's great. The ripple effect. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, you know, these guys and gals in Hobie's not a disease. The patient lives a long, long time. <laughs> now, we have a large listening audience uh, all over the world, including China and Japan and Ireland and different places. Uh, if they wanted to get some information on this... Well, they, got, they should look up the website. Yeah, what would that be? H-O-B-Y.org, O-R-G. Yeah. H-O-B-Y is pronounced Hobie, and that's short, short for my name, Hugh O'Brien Hugh. That'll tell you about the program. It'll tell you how to get more information and who you contact or where you should send email to or whatever, whatever information you want to pull down. And you can uh, become involved very, very, very quickly and very easily. It'll also take you to memorabilia and stuff that I did and showbiz and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And showbiz has uh, certainly been one of the reasons why program's been a success because uh, even today, uh, the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, uh, it'll take my phone call nine times out of ten, just simply wondering what old Wyatt Earp wants with me. <laughs> and I get them on the phone, I get them excited or interested in the program, and the next thing you know, I've not only uh, got some bucks from that company, but I also have some of their uh, key leadership willing to... Uh, be on panels and be part of the program at the local level. Wow, that's great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'll be 84 in April, uh, April 19, mm-hmm. and I'm 84 looking for more. I've got so much more that I want to do, so I hope that I'm able to uh, live a long, long time. God's been very good to me so far. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you will be. That's that's great. You know, you keep active like that. And <laughs> well, also, it's a, it's an old Marine Corps thing in terms of that that philosophy. Well, I was a Marine and I enlisted in uh, 1943 when I was 17. And uh, one way or the other, uh, right out of boot, they made me a, a drill instructor. I, did. I am the youngest drill instructor in the history of the Marine Corps. Page 17. Yes, I saw that. And the uh, 
the reason for that, quite frankly, is that uh, at that time we needed anybody uh, for stripes or time in the Corps over in the Pacific. And I relieved my drill instructor with the full-blooded Apache Indian, Sergeant Timothy, we call it. Anyway, uh, Marine Corps, uh, there are many, many things that you'll learn that you can use later in life. One of them has to do with uh, the fact that uh, it's hard to hit a moving target. So I do an awful lot of travel. <laughs> and keep moving. That's the whole philosophy does. Yeah. yeah. One way or the other, uh, one of the other things you learn in the Marine Corps is you should never eat more than you can lift. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Now, as far as your acting career, is out there listening, uh, that's a Marine Semper Fidei, friend. Okay. Uh, as far as your acting career, did you always want to be an actor? Oh, hell no. I, I had no idea of being in that business at all. I mean, you know, it's like any other kid uh, looking at the movies or whatever. Certainly, we never had television. But uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, one of the first liberties I ever had, I was up at the Hollywood canteen, and uh, there was a lady came up to me, and it turned out to be Arlene Francis. Wow. She had a, a radio program called Blind Date, a blind date program. She asked me if I would like to represent the Marine Corps. Oh, this way, way before television. Yeah. had radio and, and live theater. And I said, well, that's the deal. She said, well, we do the show on a, on a Tuesday uh, evening, and there's a blind date, a star or starlet, and they're a representative from the Army, Navy, Coast Guard, and the Marine Corps. And so you compete uh, to see which one she's going to select for the blind date. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, ma'am, you, you got the wrong guy because there's no way that I'm going to get out, uh, you know, for a, a weekend not just a weekend, but also a Monday and Tuesday in order to be, do the show on a Tuesday night. And she said, well, uh, let me, uh, what's your commanding officer's name? And I told her. About two or three weeks later, the colonel called me and he said, uh, Sergeant, uh, we got a note here that they want you to represent the Marine Corps for the blind date program. Do you want to do it? And I said, well, well sir, what's involved? And he said, well, I'll have to give you a uh, a four-day pass. Well, that sounds pretty good. I <laughs> said, uh, you got it. And I turned around and uh, walked to the door. And as I got to the door, he said, Sergeant. I turned around and said, yes, sir. He said, if you don't win, don't come back. <laughs> anyway, when we did the show a few weeks later, uh, they had the four representatives, Army, Navy, Coast Guard, Marine Corps. And it turned out, which we didn't know, all we heard was the voice, was Virginia Mail. Mm -hmm. Back then, it was uh, Virginia Mail was the Marilyn Monroe of those days. She was just a beautiful, beautiful uh, gal. Yeah. And she was the, the, the lady that was going to choose the blind date. And they would take turns, she would take, uh, we would take turns answering a question. Each one would be asked a question. And then I would, you know, the next guy would speak and so forth. And the last question she asked, uh, I, I was the last one to be asked the question. Uh, and uh, they had this, these little cards, four by five, with all these smart 
like answers, absolutely mm-hmm. stupid answers. And she said, Maureen, why do you want to date with me? And I looked at this card and what a stupid answer it was, and I threw it away and I said, because, ma'am, if I don't win, I can't go back to the barracks. She said, Maureen, you got the job. <laughs> Those men as a blind date. We went to uh, Ambassador Hotel uh, for dinner, and I had my first martini and danced with this beautiful lady, and she was doing uh, a picture of Wonder Man with Danny Kaye, and she invited me to come to the studio next day, and I did, and she introduced me to these absolutely gorgeous golden girls. There were about 12 of them that used to do these beautiful, wonderful uh, dances with all these beautiful clothes and everything. And one of them was a gorgeous redhead from Minnesota, and she asked me if I'd like, if I was busy for dinner, she'd like to introduce me to uh, the group that she was staying with, uh, some of them the Goldwing girls at this uh, uh, beautiful old mansion home off at Sunset Strip, and I said, sure, and my God, these are the most beautiful girls in the world, and uh, uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, uh, one way or the other, I did come out. California, my dad came out and uh, uh, you quit the business and came out west with mom and my brother and uh, they went to settle up in Oakland and I stayed in LA, uh, you know, to try to get a job to go. I had a four-year uh, year, uh, award from the service to go to Yale and uh, I decided to spend, you know, two weeks or so in, in Los Angeles trying to earn a buck so I could buy a car when I went back. And the next day after staying at the YMCA one night, I went over and knocked on the door of this, what they call the old uh, seven, uh, House of Seven Garbos, mm-hmm. which was where Karen lived with all the growing girls. And the mother, uh, the house mother, Marie, answered the door. She said, hey, Sergeant, come on in. You're just in time for lunch. I sat there and had this wonderful lunch, and she said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm out of the court, and uh, I'm just out here. I'm going to try to make a buck and buy a car, and she said, where are you staying? I said, well, last night I stayed at the YMCA, and she said, I'll tell you. Uh, yesterday, I fired our gardener. Uh, if you take care of the yard and the pool, I'll give you free room and board, and there's a three-car garage out there. You can clean it up, and you can make yourself a pad out there. Well, hell, that sounded pretty good. <laughs> and there I was, the only male with about 18 of the most beautiful women in the world. <laughs> it must have been hard to take, huh? Well, i got to tell you, uh, I only lasted about six months. I lost <laughs> about 45 pounds, uh, and I had to, to move out of there for health reasons. <laughs> but uh, one of the gals there uh, was doing a little theater work, and I, I thought she was really quite a classy lady. And so I, I was dating her, and if I wanted to date her, I had to go uh, to the rehearsal or get there in order to pick her up. So I'd go there with her in rehearsal and sit there and watch him work. And about the fourth or fifth rehearsal, the leading man didn't show up that night. And the director said, uh, would you uh, please read the script? And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, well, first of all, turn it right side up and then just read it when you're your name there comes up, and you just read the lines. Well, about three rehearsals later, they realized that the the actor, the leading actor, uh, wasn't going to be able to come back. He had had appendix out or something like that. 
And he said, we'd like you to do the role. I said, I have never done this before. I wouldn't know what the hell to do. And he said, well, it's not that tough. First, you learn the lines, then you say them loud enough so they can hear you in the back row, and don't bump into the friggin' furniture. <laughs> so those are the major acting lessons that I got to, to begin with. Huh. <laughs> it turns out that there were a lot of little theater being done in, in Hollywood at that time. This was about 1948, mm-hmm. and it's still before television. Anyway, uh, the head of the drama uh, page of the L.A. Times, which is a huge, huge newspaper, uh, decided to do review one of the shows, and it happened to be ours, and he came caught, and he wrote just a marvelous write-up and a review and gave uh, my the gal that I was dating uh, really, uh, really praised her, and he was very, very uh, kind to me, too. Anyway, she said, let's go down and have lunch with him. Anyway, we went down and, and met him, and we talked to her for a bit, and he turned to me and said, where'd you get, where'd you get, uh, where'd you learn your acting uh, ability? And I said, sir, I've never had any uh, ability. I just had flunked into this, and uh, one way or the other, I've never done it before. He said, well, you have a a very uh, uh, natural talent, and you've got a, a very, very strong voice. And I said, well, that's one thing you get for being a drill instructor. <laughs> but anyway, he said, I got a, uh, another uh, uh, playhouse here at the major uh, theater, which was the, uh, no, I can't even think of it now, but anyway, the large theater, and they're doing a production of Morning uh, Becomes Electric, and why don't you guys, I'd like you to go read for the roles and see what happens. Well, it worked out that she got one of the major roles, and I got the part of the leading man. And uh, when we did that show, about four or five weeks later, a guy came back after the opening night, introduced himself, and he said, I'd, I'd like to be your agent and represent you. And that's how I got my first, uh, uh, my agent that... Uh, you know, went out and tried to get me a job, and my first job was uh, riding uh, horseback with Gene Autry and Beyond the Purple Hills. Mm-hmm. And he thought that was a good thing to do because I would learn how to ride the Western saddle. Yeah. And one thing went from uh, uh, to another, and the next thing I wound up in Universal on a contract, and then wound up with a three-year, rather three-picture deal with... Uh, at the 20th Century Fox, and uh, one of the first pictures was with my idol, Spencer Traits and Broken Lands. Wow. Fantastic human being. And uh, when I came back to do the second uh, film, uh, one way or the other, uh, Tracy was off doing something else, and they gave me Spencer Tracy's dressing room, and you can imagine how that made me feel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here I am in... Spencer Tracy's dressing Wow. Yeah, geez. Much more important to me than the money. <laughs> the money's been good, and it's been a great fun business, and it's it, it can be a very exciting business, and it can be a very, very good learning experience as well. When you do films overseas, which I've done about eight, uh, the money's put in the bank at uh, escrow at home, and your salary, and they give you anywhere from 400 to $500 a day for per, per diem. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first one that I did in Hong Kong. Uh, the producer and the director and the so-called uh, the high, high and mighty uh, 
stayed at the Peninsula Hotel, and that cost about $400 a day. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was supposed to stay. And up the street on Nathan Road, about the three blocks of the Holiday Inn, and that's where the crew stayed. Mm-hmm. They were, uh, uh, the crew, uh, the rooms there were like $85 a night. Yeah. So I said, well, hell with that, I'm going to stay with the crew. So I had about 400 extra dollars in cash to spend every day. <laughs> or to do with it, whatever I want. Yeah. That never works, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> you do it when you're, when you're doing a show uh, like that, or you're doing a play, uh, one of the legit uh, musical or whatever, you, uh, you really get a chance to uh, see the town, the country or whatever, and you... Uh, get to know the movers and shakers. Yeah. And if you, you pay attention to it, you learn a great deal about that way of life. <laughs> so it's always been a, a great learning experience to me. <laughs> and I will never, ever stop learning. Uh, the dear lady that I married, uh, two years ago, uh, for our honeymoon, I took her to Oxford University in England. Oh. We both took a course in, uh, philosophy. Wow. And we're going back this summer and we're taking a course in archaeology. Oh, I mean, yeah, that should be fun. It's a great learning experience. It's fun uh, to be there. Uh, there's something new every day. And uh, they had the best food I've ever eaten hmm. at the university. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, whatever. One of the first movies you made, um, in fact, when I knew I was going to interview you, I sat down and watched it because I happened to have that movie in my library, and it was called Rocket Ship XM. Do you remember that one? Uh, uh, that was uh, that was the second film I, I did, and uh, that was really an unbelievable experience. Uh, I didn't really understand if it was that unusual, but I, I certainly learned as we went along. Uh, that started Lloyd, Lloyd Bridges, yes. became a dear friend. Yeah. And, uh, we, we, they took us out into the desert, Mojave Desert. And that, of course, is supposed to be the landscape of the moon. Mm-hmm. Or Mars, whatever, Fort Bridges. Yeah, you ended up on Mars there. <laughs> and we, as you, if you remember in the film, most of it is inside of the spaceship. Yes. But when we did land and we walked around, they put uh, these gas masks on us so <laughs> that you couldn't see whether the mouth was moving or not. Yeah. But you had to have that for oxygen anyway up there. They just assumed that. Mm-hmm. But what it did for the film is that we just walked around and made motions and so forth. And they wrote the dialogue later. We never had any dialogue. <laughs> Walked around and pointed, and then they wrote the dialogue, uh, you know, for the film later on. It was, it was an amazing experience. That's a little different. <laughs> um, another movie that you, you did that I've always enjoyed is uh, Ten Little Indians. Do you remember that one? Oh, sure. It, uh, uh, we, we did that in Ireland, and that was part of the fun of it. Uh, it was... Uh, 
Marvel film that wasn't called Ten Marvel Indians. It was, it was called Then There Are Not. Oh, okay. It was a version of Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians. Agatha, uh, yes, but they didn't call it Ten Little in Indians, which was the play. Yeah, okay. And then there were none, or something like that. Yeah, okay, yeah. That was a, that was a great experience because of uh, being in Ireland and having, uh, you know, again, uh, being paid a salary and, and having the joy of uh, all your expenses paid and getting to know the country and the people and... Yeah. Now, um, of course, I have to ask you about Wyatt Earp because that's <laughs> that one. Everybody remembers you from Wyatt Earp. Uh, how did you come about to get the part of Wyatt Earp? Well, uh, I, I'm sure they, well, as I was told, they looked at a hundred or so guys. And, uh, I think being uh, a Marine, and uh, I think a lot that had a lot to do with it. Uh, the man that, that uh, wrote the script and was the official uh, guy who, you know, paid attention to details in terms of what was true and what was not true in terms of Wyatt's life, a man by the name of Stuart Lake, who did the official bio, uh, biography on, on Wyatt Earp, and, and Wyatt uh, allowed Stuart to uh, be, the inter- you know, he spent several days, weeks interviewing him. And he's the only person the Wyatt Earp ever uh, allowed to do that. Hmm. Uh, but Stuart uh, was a Marine, so I do think that uh, and Stuart knew uh, Wyatt, and of course did the book on him. And I think one of the reasons I, I, I did get the role was because there were lots of Marines, and Stuart felt, especially as a DI, that maybe I might bring a little something to the character uh, that another actor might not. And that kind of paid off, and, and when you, if you look at the show, uh, Wyatt is a very, very cool cat. Yeah. Kind of relaxed, and uh, you know, his, his walk, his the way he moved around. But when he went into action, it was fury, and uh, there was no, no bullshit. Yeah. And he, uh, the running gag on the show is that uh, if I ever had to touch another performer or whatever, uh, they had to get two or three shirts or two or three coats because I'd rip it right off the back. <laughs> but it was a great break for me because here's somebody that actually lived and who I had read uh, a lot about anyway, and uh, I've always been interest, interested in West. Yeah, it was such a good show. And I went to, it was supposed to be the first adult western. Yeah. And it was. And what they meant was that the dialogue would be, you know, pretty authentic and it would be in the style that people spoke. And by the way, uh, it was not a Deadwood, uh, dialogue. We did not use the four letter words. Mm-hmm. And it really bothers me in a way a lot of people that are the same that see Deadwood and about every third word is a four letter word. Right, yeah. You guys talk. But anyway, uh, I, I had studied a great deal about the character before I went to Western Costume to get the, the wardrobe. And instead of getting it, you know, kind of what I thought would be the authentic looking stuff, they had the white hat and so forth. And I said, well, folks, you got the wrong boy here. If you want me to wear that, you're going to get somebody else because that's not the kind of stuff they wore. Hmm. So I walked out of there wearing what I thought 
was right, and I was right. Uh, he wore a frock coat, no vest, and uh, that's the same kind of a dress that in the town that the, the mayor wore, or the guy that, that owned the bar or the drugstore or the hardware store. Uh, they wore uh, suits of those days, or when, when they were uh, casual, they wore they didn't wear polka dot shirts, let's put it that way. Right, yeah. <laughs> he went on the trail, and he wore, uh, you know, trail clothes. And one way or the other, uh, that long with the dialogue uh, that Stuart sat on top of, it was pretty authentic. Yeah. So it was considered to be, and I think it's certainly one of the reasons why it took off and became, we were never less than second or third show on TV for, you know, seven years. Yeah. I think the main reason was because it was authentic. Yeah. But uh, people used to ask me, uh, you know, really, what do you mean by being an adult Western? And the simple, quick answer is, well, uh, the cowboy still kissed the horse, but he worried about it. <laughs> anyway. I that. Now, you, you... We did two shows a week. Mm -hmm. And so every year I had uh, about six months off, and I used that to go out and do rodeos and horse shows and uh, theater, all kinds of stuff. And uh, uh, I never had time to spend it, so I, I had a pretty good bank account by the time I finished. But I'll tell you, uh, the salaries then, when I think about what they're getting today, yeah. <laughs> my first year doing Wild Earth, I think I got something like $300 a week. Mm -hmm. Today they'd have to put about three zeros up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, now you've had the opportunity to play Wyatt Earp over the years in, in movies and things. Well, we did one movie, uh, uh, Return to Tombstone, which came out pretty well. Yeah, but didn't you also play uh, Wyatt Earp in The Gambler Returns? Yeah, I don't think that was a movie, was it? That was a TV movie, I believe. Oh. Okay, now we're talking about two different things. You're talking about a movie for TV. Right, yeah. I also did the uh, the first two-hour movie for television. I did the very first one. It was called Harpy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Harpy uh, is the uh, Harpy Eagle. It's the second largest bird in the world. And it had a uh, seven-foot wing, wing spread, and uh, the film had to do with uh, uh, with that. Uh, Oh, God, I can't even think of the word now, but uh, where we would uh, use uh, the bird to go out and get, uh, uh, pick up things and fly back with whatever I asked him to go get. Uh -huh. And uh, falconry. A falcon, okay, yeah. Falconry, yeah. But it was a, that was a lot of fun to do, but it took a lot to learn how to handle it. I'm sure. Yeah. Huge. Seven-foot wingspread weighed 32 pounds. Wow. <clears throat> uh, the bird had three doubles. I didn't have one. Now you've had the opportunity to um, play different roles in different movies over the years, and of course you've played with some big actors. But um, one of the ones that I particularly liked, of course, uh, is the Shootist with John Wayne. Uh, that was that was a very special film for me. Well, actually, for all of us in it. Uh, my history with the with the man, the, the Duke. Uh, began in the Marine Corps. Uh, he refereed my first prize fight. Oh, really? Wow. And uh, that's a good story in terms of uh, 
really understanding where this man was coming from. Uh, he was down there making a film, uh, evidently, and uh, the way uh, that he wanted to, he loved the Marine Corps, so he asked to get referee in one of the fights. A Friday night uh, in boot camp, uh, every Friday night we had what they called smokers. And you went to this, uh, you know, outdoor arena with all the uh, benches around it, and uh, we would have uh, one platoon uh, against another in, in prize fights in, in boxing. And the way they chose the, the boxer to represent the platoon is they uh, take uh, 64 pieces of paper and put it in a pith helmet, you know, the cut up paper. Mm-hmm. And all were blank except one, and, and whoever picked the one off Mark Boxer is the one that was representing the platoon that night. Well, on this third or fourth week, whatever it was, I happened to pull out the one that said Boxer. And I, at the time, weighed about 150 pounds, ringing wet, and about, you know, 6'2", and very late. Yeah. And uh, they introduced me, and I got into the ring, and uh, then they... Uh, in, introduced the guy from the next platoon that had picked out the one mark boxer. He got in the ring. He was a little over six foot, uh, about six foot uh, five, something like that, six something. And he weighed about 325 pounds. He was a huge African American, Afro American who was uh, had been the uh, number one tackle on Texas A&M football team and had listed in the Marine Corps. And here I was in the ring with this huge man, and uh, they introduced John Wayne, and he came into the ring to referee the fight, and he looked at the skinny little run, he looked, <laughs> that's one of the few times I ever saw John Wayne look up at anybody. And he said, you guys want to fight my rules, or you want to fight uh, regular Queensberry rules, regular rules of boxing? Well, we didn't want to argue with him, so we said, well, we'll fight your rules. He said, good. <laughs> I think on the way out, he gave me a little wink, and he went out of, climbed through the ropes, went down to the guy with the gong, picked up the hammer, and he hit the gong, and that was it for almost 15 minutes. Wow. There was no, uh, no, uh, no timeout. <laughs> Three minute round, or, you know, the minute and a half or whatever. Yeah. We fought straight for 15 minutes, and he finally, uh, the big guy collapsed, and just out of exhaustion, and I fell on top of him, I still have a little copper bracelet proof. <laughs> and then you go about to, what, 20, 35 years later, 40 years later, and they're going to do the film The Shooters. Yeah. And I called Frankovich, the producer, and I said, Frank, you know, I said, Mike, i got to be in this film. He said, yeah, there's nothing in there for you. I said, I don't care, I'll do a walk-on uh, the next year. I just, you know, I want to be in the film. We all think it's going to be his last. And he said, yes, we all feel the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody in that film has to be in that film. Jimmy Stewart, Richard Boone, Abacall, uh One way or the other, uh, he called me up about five or six days later or whatever. It was Mike Frank, but he said, you... So we'll send you a script. He said, I think we, we reworked a, a role and I think, I think it's okay. Uh, it's not as big as, you know, I'm sure you like it, but I think it's a good role. And they sent me the script and I look at it and I said, I think it's great. It's terrific. Hmm. So I played the peril dealer in that and that was, uh, you know, his, uh, a former gunfighter and this is his way of, uh, 
of cooling off and getting out of the business of what he did when he was a gunfighter. Yeah. And the, the character of John Wayne, of course, was uh, a great man of the West and, and a tremendous gunfighter who was dying of what they called then canker. And he came into town to see the doc, and it turned out to be Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, you've got canker, which means cancer. And you've got maybe a week or two at the very best. And then you're gone. <laughs> and Wayne decided uh, that he didn't want to, the character decided he didn't want to die in bed with his boots off. So he called those other three people together to ha- meet him in the saloon. And then that turns into uh, a really tremendous uh, uh, gunfight uh, between Wayne and the three people that he chose to meet him in the bar. Mm-hmm, yeah. And there were a lot of things that happened in that that were very, very special because it was Wayne, you know, that insisted on authenticity. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you that when I get come around the bar and get hit in the forehead, it's got to be one of the most, well, one of the most, uh, well, the toughest stuff that I've ever had to do because. Uh, it's a pellet that hit me right between the eyes, just quarter hmm. inch above the nose. Wow. And the uh, camera's about eight feet away, and the man with the, the rifle and the pellet uh, sitting or lying beside the camera. And as I came around the corner of the bar, I get plugged. And the director wanted to see the plug hit. Hmm. And that took an awful lot to be able to come around there and hope to Christ the guy would not miss. Yeah, and uh, we practiced it a couple of times, not not with the you know with the pellet, yeah, but just in terms of exactly where my eye had to be and when I came around there. Jeez. I had to do it. Of course, I knew I was going to get hit. I had to come around the end, that edge and not blink. And you try that sometimes, right? Yeah, that must have been hard. Yeah, it was very good. I told the director, I said, we're going to do it once. It doesn't get it right, we're not going to do a second time. But we did get it right, for sure. Hmm. Yeah, that was a good movie. A couple more teams after that. <laughs> a great guy, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think of him often, and, uh, yeah, he was, he was a man's man. He was a great guy. Yeah. Uh, really, in my books, a, a king. I mean, he and Spencer Tracy, and, wow, they were just, just terrific. Yeah, yeah. Same with Gary Cooper. I love Gary. Oh, really? Yeah. What else you got? Well, um, well, I could go on forever, but <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> How about one other thing? How about the Virginian? You were on the pilot of the Virginian. Yes. And I, I enjoyed doing that, and I, I felt Gary would do a good job, and uh, we re- rewrote it a little bit. But I, I think it's, uh, you know, something I, I don't ever think. It, I don't think I ever saw the show. Oh, really? I'm glad you brought it up. I have to try to get a copy of it. I tell you, there are quite a few, uh, quite a few shows that I never, that I never saw. I'm sure, yeah. Had time, but now I've got time. Yeah. I guess I'll have to do it. Yeah, the Virginian's not available on DVD. Uh, in fact, I just had James Drury two weeks ago on the show. I don't know why, but. <laughs> By the way, Wyatt Earp, uh, uh, you can't think of the name of the company, whatever, but they bought all 276 shows, and they, beginning next April, they'll be on every night of the week. Oh, really? Yeah, for 200, 
a whole run. Wow. So every night in a week, what, for five months or whatever, you're going to have. Huh. Planet Earth will be on there. Do you know what the what network? You know, I don't know whether it's the Western Channel or, or what it is. I just know the prime time, and uh, I just don't have it. I just don't have the time to look at TV a lot. And right. Do I look at the news? Sixty minutes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of time looking at the programs. Not too early in the morning. I got too much to do. Yeah. <laughs> I love what I'm doing. Yeah, well, that's good. That's that's good. The other, I'm writing a book. Oh, you are? Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm having fun with it. Uh, Divided my life into five stages. There'll be about four or five chapters in each stage. From the time I was born until the time, well, till now. Yeah. And the five stages are: first stage is who's you, O'Brien. Takes me through school and up to. Uh, well, Marine Corps. Yeah. And then I come out of the Marine Corps and we go into, uh, when I get into show business, we go into stage two. Mm -hmm. When I start getting paid and people put me under contract and you're in a position of, uh, not, not only getting paid, but people want you. And then third stage is, uh, uh, what is the third stage? First stage is who's Hugh O'Brien. Second stage, get me Hugh O'Brien. Third stage is get me a Hugh O'Brien type. I want somebody like that, but I don't want to have to pay his salary. Uh, Starting salary. Yeah. And then the uh, and that that is when you become uh, successful in whatever uh, profession, and uh, they want a, a new guy, but who can do what that guy did. Hmm. And then the fourth stage is get me a young Hugh O'Brien. <laughs> And that's the stage I'm in now. Yeah. And uh, the fifth stage is Bruce Hugh O'Brien. <laughs> Bottom line is we all go from stage one to stage five. And how much money you make or how successful you become, uh, stage five, there's nobody in the world that can buy forever. You can't, you know, buy tomorrow. When your time comes, it goes. That's it. But I think we'll always remember you, O'Brien. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I, I've still got a lot to prove and a lot of things that I want to uh, get done. I have a new youth organization I'm putting a lot of time in now called WIN. It's spelled W-Y-N, and it's a win-win deal for anybody. Mm -hmm. And it means world, uh, world Youth Network. Yeah. And the whole focus of it is going to be uh, on international trade and the global marketplace. And the idea is to uh, encourage young people to uh, and I'm going to be working with high school freshmen, uh -huh. get them excited about the potential of uh, international trade and the global marketplace and how they can be part of that, and to think about that as a career. Hmm. Of course, uh, companies that have overseas uh, uh, involvements, uh, I think it's a hell of an idea, and this is a way of uh, building the, the workers for the future in that, in that particular discipline. Boy, you are busy. <laughs> Very much, and anybody that's still with us, <laughs> oh God, let's all go get a martini. Five dollars <laughs> to everybody, and thank you for your friendship, and I hope that you will do me the honor, please, take a look at the Hobie website, H-O-B-Y dot org, and H-O-B-Y is short for Hobie, 
That's short for my name, Hugh O'Brien Youth, and that's where old Wyatt Earp has put all of his guts, bucks, and time. And uh, I just wish I had another 84 years to go. Thank you, Youth. God bless all of you. God is important, and that's why I'm still here. God bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, we want to thank you, O'Brien, for taking the time to chat with us. And uh, he had a lot to say and a lot of interesting things to say. And he is one busy guy. It's unbelievable the stuff he's doing. And he just doesn't seem to want to stop. And that's great. So uh, we want to thank him for doing that. And as I said earlier, we're going to be heading out to the California Independent Film Festival on April 16th to the 19th. And if you're going to be there and you see me, say hi. I'd like to like to meet you. Uh, you you won't miss me because I'll have uh, one of my uh, on screen and beyond shirts on, so you won't uh, you know get my little emblem on there, and uh, you'll you'll know who I am. And uh, let's see what else here. Um, yes, the next show we are going to have our summer movie preview. So we're going to give you a rundown of all the bigger movies that are or the ones they think are going to be big, anyways. They're going to be coming out this summer. And uh, some of them, I'm sure, will be summer blockbusters, and others uh, will turn out to be eh, not so quite, uh, you know, so big as they thought. But that's going to be coming up in the next episode of On Screen and Beyond. Also on the next show, I said I'd give you a hint on who our guest is going to be. Uh, it's a really interesting interview from this person. They are really, really very interesting. Um, the hint is the hills are alive, and they are on the run. All right. See if you can figure that one out. You know, um, that's who our next guest is going to be. That's a hint to who it's going to be. The hills are alive and they are on the run. And, you know, what the heck? If you if you can figure out before the next one uh, comes out, just send me an email. See if you can figure it out. OK, uh, just a little, you know, win nothing. You can win. You know, uh, <laughs> if, if you get it right, I'll I'll say your name on the next episode and we'll tell people that uh, you were able to figure it out. But uh, we'll see what happens. And uh, if you want to do that, just uh, go ahead and email me at um, feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. Uh, you can find it uh, on our website, too. There's a right on the front page, right at the very beginning, it says, you know, if you want to email us, email us at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. And, uh, in fact, you can click on it, and it'll open up your, you know, send you an email. Uh, so, anyways, uh, that's about it for now. Um, be sure to... Stick around and join us. We really appreciate you guys listening to this show. And uh, we love hearing from you. So you can send us an email or something and tell us who you'd like to see, uh, have as a guest on the show or whatever. But um, until next time, this is Brian saying take care.